Alhamdulillah, we continue in this blessed month of Ramadan where Allah has once again given us an opportunity to be His guests at the Divine Banquet. This evening we can review, continue our review of chapter number 48, Surah Al-Fatih, the chapter of the opening, also known as the chapter of the victory. And this evening in session 10, we're going to be looking at the theme of the power of Allah, the power and authority of Allah. And we'll look at two specific verses this evening, verses number 13 and 14. Now, if you'll recall, just as a brief preamble and a reminder from our previous sessions that we were going over this chapter and the, prim the primary um, discussion that Allah was giving was that of the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah. We talked about the fact of what happened as a precursor uh, and where the Muslims ended up, that they were not able to go to Umrah, they had to go back. And in the last few verses, Allah shifted the attention from the Muslim community and the gifts which Allah gave the believers, the spiritual gifts. And He began to point at the hypocrites, the munafikeen. And more specifically, we're looking at a group called the A'rab, that, that is the desert Arabs, the Bedouin Arabs. And they have a unique culture, a unique, a unique way of thinking. Uh, and so Allah was telling us a bit about you know, their fake excuses, as you recall, they were saying, well, we can't come with you, Ya Rasulullah, to Umrah, because our wealth our, and our families have kept us busy. And they kept bringing up excuses of why they wouldn't, or why they could not come to Umrah with the Prophet. And then as you'll recall in our last session that Allah responded to them and basically called their bluff. He said, you know what, it's not a matter of you wanting to protect your wealth or your families. You're just scared that what, would what were to happen if the Muslims were attacked and they were killed, you being a part of them would also be attacked and maybe lose your lives. And because you're not Muslims, you're hypocrites. You don't want that because you're not really committed to the religion. And so we looked at in our previous sessions some of the uh, excuses these people were bringing out that Allah specifically called them out upon. Uh, today in these two verses, we want to look at, again at the outcome of the hypocrites, again these A'rab, as well as the polytheists of Mecca, the ones who were still rejecting Rasulullah and didn't want to listen to the truth, although many of them accepted Rasulullah as truthful, they knew him as a sadiq, as a truthful one, they knew him to be a man of you know, impeccable character, but because of personal issues, they didn't want to come and accept the religion of Islam. So how does Allah speak about them? Well, in verse number 13, we see that Allah says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ وَمَنْ لَمْ يُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَإِنَّا أَعَتَدْنَا لِلْكَافِرِينَ سَعِيرًا Whoever does not believe in Allah and His Messenger, meaning the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Allah says, then surely we, Allah, have prepared a blaze for the unbelievers. So one of the things that Allah is showing us in this verse, brothers and sisters, is that Iman, belief in Allah, is integral to salvation. Not only Iman, that's the first component, but as the Quran mentions time and time again, it's Iman and Amal salih to do proper righteous actions, obviously with the proper intention as well. And so Allah repeats this theme many times in the Quran that if you don't believe in Allah and the Messenger, other times He'll add the concept or the, you know, the aspect of uh, actions as well. Then Allah says, we have prepared for the disbelievers a blaze, a fire. Now, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is this word kafir or the term kufr, right? Disbelief or disbelievers. Um, 
Sometimes we tend to maybe want to paint the entire society that doesn't believe as kafir. But kafir is a very unique word in the Quran. It's used in multiple instances. I mean, one of the most uh, unique definitions or the uh, meanings of kafir in the Quran is a farmer. We tend to think of a kafir as somebody who doesn't believe in God, which is one meaning of it. But kafir in the Quran also means a farmer because kafir, literally the word kafara, means to cover over the truth, right? And a farmer, what is the job of a farmer? He covers over the seed. So he's covering something over. So when we say this person is a kafir, we say that they know the truth, and yet they're still trying to conceal it. When we look at the definition in that way, we begin to realize that just because somebody is a non-Muslim, it doesn't necessarily make them kafir in the way that we think of it, right? Because in order to be a kafir, you have to be actively denying the truth. You have to have known what the truth is. You have to have known the reality of God, of Allah, of religion. And then you decide because of personal benefit, economic, social, whatever reason, that you don't want to believe in God, in Allah. Then you become a kafir. So, you know, many times we will see people who don't believe in God. Maybe many of our co-workers or friends at school or neighbors they don't believe in God, not because they have studied theology or they've studied about Allah and they deny it. No, but you know they haven't had an opportunity many times to actually recognize and study about Allah. Or they've had a bad encounter with people of religion, which made them leave religion, right? And unfortunately, many times this happens is that uh, people look at religion through the lens of the practitioners of that religion, right? And we see this many times. I remember when I worked in the corporate world that one of my co-workers from Latin America, she was born into a Catholic family and she went through a lot of the physical abuse that the church is guilty of, the Catholic church. And so when, we would, when I would talk to her, she completely rejected God because she had a negative encounter in the Catholic church. And she basically took that negative encounter on God. She says, well, you know, if, if God could allow that to happen, what kind of a God is that? Right? So she was rejecting the notion of God, but because of what other people had done to her. Right? And that's, that's one of the problems is that, you know, many times, even when it comes to Islam, the non-Muslims will judge Islam not by the religion in and of itself, by the Quran, but they'll judge it based on what we do as Muslims, right? And you've heard this and seen this many times. When acts of violence happen in the name of Islam, when acts of terrorism happen in the name of our religion, when people, so-called Muslims, commit these acts of violence, the mainstream public, they don't have time to read the Quran and go through the Hadith and look at the du'as to see what Islam says. They'll say, see, look at those Muslims. Their religion, their God, their prophet must be encouraging them to do these actions. And so they'd reject Islam. They haven't denied Allah because their study of the Quran, they couldn't come to understanding of Allah. It's because of what Muslims or so-called Muslims have done, which has left a negative stain on those individuals. So that doesn't mean that those people are not kafir in, the, in, a, in a general sense because they have still rejected the truth. But we can't necessarily, you know, pin the blame on them. We can't say, oh, all of these non-believers around us are going to hell. 
right? First of all, as Muslims, we are in no position to relegate people either to heaven or hell, right? There are many examples, even in the time, time of Rasulullah, where Sahaba, prominent companions would die. The Prophet would bury that companion with his own hands. And then another companion would come to the Prophet and say, how lucky this, this Sahabi is going to Jannah. And the Prophet would have to remind them that just because I attended his funeral and I, I, I performed the rites of the burial, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is going to heaven. And sometimes the Prophet would actually tell the people what this person is going through in the barzakh. Right? So we as believers, we are never in a position to judge. Now, if we look at the Qur'an and we see verses of the Qur'an, and Allah speaks about people that are condemned to hell, that's a different story, like the Fir'aun, like the people of uh, the tribe, the, the people of Nabi Lut, alayhi salam, like the people of Prophet Lut, or Prophet Nuh, alayhi salam. Those communities that came before us, and Allah has given us clear direction in the Qur'an about them, we can judge those. Or people that, that Rasulullah had spoken about. If people, if Rasulullah ever mentioned hadith and he singled out certain people and we know those names, then we can rest assured that those people are going to hell. Because Rasulullah would have ilmul ghayb, knowledge of the unseen, and he would only speak what Allah is permitting him to speak. So he would never say somebody is going to, you know, the, to Jahannam and Allah quote-unquote, changes his mind, or that person changes. The Prophet wouldn't make that kind of a blunder. Uh, so we don't want to ever relegate somebody to hell that isn't worthy of it. At the same time, we don't presume everybody to go to heaven. We judge everybody accordingly. And this is one place where we, the Shia and the Ashari, differ from the other Muslims, is that we don't say that just because you are with Rasulullah, because you had a, a title of companion, that you are automatically destined for heaven. We'll, and we'll see that in verse 18, when we look at the Bayat of Ridwan, and how we interpret that verse, which is much different than the mainstream Muslim community. So with that, let me move on uh, and mention this, that really in theology, uh, a kafir is defined as somebody who has not accepted monotheism, not accepted the one God, or any of the necessary, necessary requisites. Even if a person says the shahadatain, the de declaration of faith, they stand in front of you and they say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna muhammadan rasulullah. Allahumma salli ala muhammad wa ali muhammad. And even if they practice the rites, we don't, uh, you know, we have to still delve a bit deeper into it. So basically Islam is saying at one level, so there's two levels to this discussion. I want to try to unpack this a little bit. At one level, if a person says the shahadatain and they're practicing, at a general level, we know that, for example, if they slaughter an animal, we can eat it. If they cook food for us, we can eat it. We don't ask them questions. But there are certain levels or certain aspects of religion, of even coming into Islam, where not that we doubt their Islam, but we have to delve a little bit deeper into it. Right? Because what we basically know, brothers and sisters, is that Islam is not just saying the shahadatain and now you can, you know, now that you're in Islam. Yes, at one level that's the case, and that's how you know you're judged at one level in the world, and, and the akhirah you'll also be judged. But it has to go deeper than that. The reason it has to go deeper than that is because, as Rasulullah would tell us in the hadith, 
is that there would be many different sects, many different groups within Islam that would all claim to be Muslim. Do we follow and accept all of them within the religion? I'll give you an example that in America, there's a group called the Nation of Islam. It was created by Elijah Muhammad in the early 1900s. Malcolm X, if you've heard his name, the late Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz, may Allah raise his rank, was one of the uh, top ministers in in this so-called Islamic movement. He obviously broke off and became a mainstream Muslim. Today, a man named Louis Farrakhan runs this organization. They call themselves Muslims. They have masajid, they build masjids, they pray. But if you study their core identity, and this is not a a secret or it's not an exaggeration, if you read their final, their newspaper called The Final Call, usually on the very back page of every issue, they have their terms of belief, and they believe that Allah came down in the form of a human being, in the person of Master Farad Muhammad, to teach Elijah Muhammad Islam. So do we say that these are proper Muslims? That, they're, they, that they have the correct ideology and aqidah? Right? No, they believe that God came down in the form of a human. This is their actual belief, that God came in the form of a human, taught Islam to Elijah Muhammad, and then went back up into the heavens. Now all of their other beliefs about end of time and a spaceship coming up to take all the believers in a spaceship, that's completely separate. But just the fact that they believe that, and maybe you can even extract and say that they believe that Elijah Muhammad was a messenger of Allah, a Rasul of Allah, although they may play with words and say, well, we don't mean messenger as in Rasul. No, we mean a messenger as in a a man who delivered the message in general. But the fact that they say that God comes down in human form, we can't accept them as Muslims. And that's one example. There are maybe tens or hundreds of other sects in the world today that claim to be Muslim, that pray, that fast, that give sadaqah, that read the Qur'an, that are probably fasting today, but we can't necessarily accept them. Again, whatever Allah does with them is one issue, but when it comes to our uh, very intimate interaction, we have to be aware of this. So let me give you a a breakdown of these four basic categories, or as as best as I could kind of lay it out for us. Uh, Four different examples of four different people. The first one is a person that, let me change that slide, is the first person is the one that says the Shahadatain. They believe in Allah as the one true God, but they don't believe in other aspects of Islam, such as the Day of Judgment, or Nubuwat, or the finality of Nubuwa. They may pray, they may fast, they may wear, wear hijab, but because they deny what we call the dhururiyat of the deen, a necessity of religion, they are not Muslims. Again, they, believe, they say the shahadatain. They uh, believe that Allah is the only one God. They don't associate partners with Allah. But they say, you know what? Other prophets can come after Rasulullah. Or they might say, you know, that um, this concept of Yom al-Qiyamah, the resurrection, it's not a physical, it's a, it's a spiritual resurrection. We have a, a vision or a dream, and heaven and hell are not as we think them to be. And they back up their evidences, and they truly believe this. Again, Allah can deal with them how He wants, but as believers, we would say, okay, we'll respect you as a human being, we'll shake your hand, we'll you know, work together, we go to school together, we're neighbors, but... We don't consider you as Muslims in terms of 
the specifics of religion. It doesn't mean we're violent against you. It doesn't mean we you know, sentence you to death. It just means we don't accept you as Muslims because there are certain criteria. One of them example as, as well, as, as an example, as I mentioned, is that you have to believe that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad We have to believe that he is the final prophet, that no prophet would come after him. Now people bring this, excuse, this question up, but what about Nabi Isa? We all believe Shia and Sunni and all Muslims and Nabi Isa will come back with our 12th Imam. And they use this example and they say, but look, Prophet Isa will come. So he's a prophet that comes after our final prophet. But we have to remember that in that instance, when Prophet Isa, Prophet Jesus comes back, he's no longer a prophet. His nabuwa ended with the coming of Rasulullah. So yes, he has a prophet in a spiritual status, but with coming of the messenger of Allah in Mecca, Nabi Isa and all of the previous prophets, their sharayat, their, sh their shara'i, their sharias, were all rendered null and void. Everybody was obligated to follow Rasulullah. So even Jesus coming back, he won't claim to be a prophet anymore. He even says in the hadith that when he comes back in Jerusalem and what is occupied Palestine today, and the time for namaz will come, he will tell Imam, or the, the 12th Imam rather, Imam al-Hujjah will tell Nabi Isa, he'll say, Taqaddam, you go ahead and you lead the Jamaat prayers. And Nabi Isa says to the 12th Imam, he says, actually you have more of a right over this ummah. I'm your advisor and an assistant, but you are the leader. Right? So even Prophet Isa knows his position. His prophethood is ended in the sense of continuation of his actual mission. And now it's the turn of Islam as taught by the Prophet and Ahlul Bayt So his coming back doesn't make him a new prophet. And again, some Muslims think that this is, uh, that his coming back is an indication that there would be another prophet after the messenger, which is not correct. Number two, the example I give is a person who says the Shahadatain, they believe in Allah as the one true God. They believe in all other aspects like uh, Day of Judgment, like Nubuwa, like the finality of prophethood. They don't pray, however. They don't pray, they maybe don't fast, maybe they don't wear hijab. But they believe that that is a commandment of Islam. They're Muslims. They don't pray, but they believe that namaz is wajib. They might not fast Ramadan, but they believe that fasting is wajib. It might be a Muslim sister who doesn't wear hijab, but she says, I know it's wajib, but I just, I'm not ready or I can't do it or I'm not at that level yet. I can't understand it and I'm not gonna, I can't wear it right now and kind of, you know, be hypocritical about it. We have to recognize that these are Muslims because they're sinners if they're not at that level of fulfilling the act. And Allah, inshallah, we pray that if any of us are at that level that Allah will allow us to see the beauty of these actions and perform them. But they're Muslims because at least they acknowledge the obligatory nature of these acts of worship. They don't perform them, but they acknowledge that Allah has made those wajib. So we have to say that these people are within the fold of Islam, even though they don't follow the practicality of religion. And so if they, again, slaughter meat, they have a restaurant, no questions asked, we eat their food because they are believers. Number three is a person who says the shahadatain, they believe in Allah as the one God. They believe in all of the other aspects. 
Yom al Qiyamah, the Day of Judgment, Prophethood, Finality. They don't pray and they come and say, I don't believe that this is a part of Islam. I've had sisters tell me, you know what? This hijab, this is not, a, not, this is not in Islam. I've seen the hadith, I've read the ayat, I don't believe it. I don't believe that hijab is a, is, uh, is a necessity for the 21st century. I've had sisters tell this to me, not in Saskatoon, <laughs> in other places I've been to. right? And they say that with conviction, that I don't believe hijab to be mandatory. You know, we live in a society, they'll say, where women are out there in whatever they wear. Nobody's going to look at me if I'm dressed modestly with long sleeves. I don't have to cover my hair. Or people will say, you know what, I don't have to read, I don't have to read namaz. I don't have to perform namaz. Why? You know, I can meditate. I don't have to fast Ramadan. I'll just, you know, I'll eat modest food. I'll eat simply. I won't be, a, I won't, you know, uh, I won't go and be gluttonous. I won't be wasteful. I don't have to fast in a certain regiment from you know, Fajr all the way to Maghrib and all of this difficulty. They're not a Muslim, unfortunately. They may say the Shahadatain right in front of you, right? They will say, I believe in all of the Aqidah, the, the, the belief system, I fully believe in it, but I don't believe in any of the acts of worship. Right? My praying is, is meditation. My khums and zakat is I'll give to the United Way or to some good charity that's doing work. But I don't believe in khums, I don't believe in any of these actions. Unfortunately, we have to regard them as non-believers. Now again, that doesn't mean we break off ties. It doesn't mean we excommunicate them. It doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean we are violent. No, we treat them as believers. We give them love. We hopefully encourage them. We teach them. We show them the right way with the hopes that they will come to the path and recognize the servitude, the ubudiyah as it's called, of, in worship of Allah, that this is integral to the religion of Islam. The fourth example I give is of a person who says the shahadatain, they believe in Allah as the one true God, they believe in all other aspects, all of the usul deen all of the furu'adeen, they pray, they fast, they wear hijab, so on and so forth, they have no qualms with the furu'adeen, the ten, and maybe even more than that. They are basically a bona fide, full Muslim in every sense of the word. Right? And there's no discrimination against them. We never question them. I hear people, again, not in Saskatoon, in other parts where I've been, in other, in other cities and countries, they will say, well, you know, that Shia brother, they'll get invited to their house and they'll ask them before they come that, you know, where do you buy your halal meat from? That, you don't ask. If, if, if one of the community members invites you over for dinner and you know they're a believer, you don't ask them where they buy their meat from. That's not your responsibility. You trust them as a mu'min or a mu'mina. You don't ask them any of these questions. Unfortunately, there are some in our community of believers that will ask another believer, where do you buy your meat from? Where do you get this from? Where do you get that from? And you can't do that. You can't have those kinds of thoughts of a believer. Once they are in that category, even if, again, even if I said that they don't pray, you're, they're still believers and you still are obligated to respect them at that level. So hopefully that is clear. Now let me just mention this in one or two minutes. And why do we see the strictness with regard to this? Where it seems that we are treating non-Muslims, Jews and Christians let's say, and non-Shias, the mainstream Ahl-Sunnah community, why do we treat them differently than other non-Shias? 
And I don't want to mention names of other non-Shia groups because there's, so, there's, there's a multitude of, of them out there. But I think it's clear that Allah says that there are minimum requirements for Islam. Right? There is a minimum set of beliefs that you have to have to be considered a Muslim. When it comes to non-Muslims, uh, the Jews and Jewish community and Christian community, we can eat their food, no problem. If it comes to halal meat, obviously we have to make sure that they are getting it from a halal source, that they're not slaughtering it themselves, but we, they can touch the meat, they can touch the food with their wet hand, and it's not a problem. We don't even have to ask them anything. We go to a, a restaurant that says, sells vegetarian food, let's say, and it's run by a, somebody who's an identifiable Christian or a Jewish person. You can eat that food, no problem. Right? You don't even have to ask, the, and you shouldn't ask the religion. Ayatollah Sistani says in his book of rulings, you don't go and ask the religion of the people. I've, I've seen and I've heard brothers tell me that, you know, I'll go to a new restaurant and I'll ask them, can I come in the kitchen and see who's cooking? You're going to interview the people, what religion they follow. No, Ayatollah Sistani says you don't do that. You don't need to do that and you should not be doing that. If a new restaurant opens up in Saskatoon and it labeled, it's labeled itself as halal, Yes, you can go in and look to make sure there's a certificate that, is, that authenticates their halal meat, that it's from a vendor that you know or trust. It's coming from a source where you know that the meat is slaughtered properly. But you can't go in and ask the, the cashier or the person working what religion you follow. If you don't want to eat, then don't eat there, right? You can do your minimum investigation, make sure that the meat is halal. But other than that... We shouldn't be investigating that deep. Now, if it's a non-Muslim restaurant, let's say it's a Hindu restaurant or one another, another tradition which is not with an Ahl al-Kitab, your marja may have a different ruling. Ayatollah Sistani doesn't believe these other groups to be, to be najis, to be impure. He has a different ruling on it, which means you could do ruju, you could follow another marja, and if you wanted to eat at a restaurant by... Buddhists or Sikhs or Hindus or others, you can eat that no problem. Uh, we can maybe discuss that later on offline if there's any questions or concerns about it. Uh, but Islam does put people in different categories, right? So Jewish and Christian community, because Allah gave them prophets and revelation, they have a different status. Right? They have a unique status vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim community. We even hear this term that's used in, in, our, in our society, the people of the Abrahamic religions, because we all stem from Nabi Ibrahim salam. The Jewish tradition, or what was given to Nabi Musa, what is called by the Jewish tradition, what is called Christianity, which were the teachings of, of Nabi Isa, Prophet Jesus, and obviously Islam, which was given to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. But all other non-Shia groups, we have to be careful of them. Not that if we eat their food, we're going to convert and become one of them. No, but Islam, again, has minimum rules that we need to follow. And every religion is like this. If you go to the Sikh community and you ask them, here's a halal burger, here's chicken, which is halal. They'll say, I'm not allowed to eat halal meat slaughtered by a Muslim. Do we hate them because they won't eat our, our halal meat? No, that's their religion. Let them follow what they want. We don't have problem with the Jewish community when the Jewish community says we only eat kosher. That's their religion. Their rabbi has to certify the process and be present for the slaughtering of the animal. They have to read their own maybe prayers in Hebrew. That's up to them. Let them follow what they want to follow. 
right? We as Muslims and as Shias, we have to recognize that we shouldn't fall into the trap. Well, all, they're all Muslims, so we should be, you know, do, you know, have that relationship. No, we respect one another, but there are limitations when it comes to certain aspects of this religion. Let me move on to the next verse and then we'll conclude in the next four minutes. Where Allah says in verse 14, وَلِلَّهِ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ يَغْفِرُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيُؤَذِّبُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا To Allah belongs the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth. He forgives whom He wills and He punishes whom He wills. And Allah is all forgiving, all compassionate. Now keep in mind where these verses are coming down. They're talking about the munafiqeen about the mushrikeen, about the kuffar, about those who doubted the prophet at Hudaybiyah. And so Allah has to remind these people that yes, you doubted Rasul, you doubted Allah. But remember that brothers and sisters, especially for all of us, there is never a dead end with Allah. Allah says in this verse, as you can see, He forgives whom He wills and He punishes whom He wills based on their own actions. And Allah is ghafoorur rahim. And it's important that you keep this order in mind. Allah didn't begin the verse with He said His forgiveness is always in front of His anger and punishment and wrath. Meaning that for all of us, there is never a dead end. Again, I always go to this example of Hur. On the, on, in, on, in, in the 10th of Muharram, Hur is the man who stops Imam Hussein from leaving from going ahead or going back from going get to get water and yet when he comes to Abu Abdullah and he says is there tawbah can I have repentance Abu Abdullah doesn't push him away and say to hell with you Hur. what did you do to me you made my women will become widows my children will be orphans he says if you turn to Allah Allahu Allah will turn to you right had he said, وَيُؤَذِّبُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ Hur would have maybe gone back to the camp of Umar ibn Sa'ad, لَعْنَتُلَا عَلَيْهِ But Imam Hussain lived this verse, وَيَغْفِرُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ Allah can forgive. And in this month of Ramadan, brothers and sisters, we're in the month of, of mercy of Allah. We could be the worst sinners. And we have to recognize that if we turn to Allah, Allah will turn back to us. Allah says, وَأَنَّ التَّوَّابُ rahim." I am the one who continuously turns back to you in tawbah. Because tawbah doesn't mean repentance, it means to turn back. We become people who do tawbah. Allah says, I am the one who will come back to you as well. Even though you may leave me, I will come back to you and I will forgive you. And so we have to recognize, and I'll end in the next minute, as when it comes to the mercy of Allah, this is in the Quran. And in the du'as, you know, in Laylatul Qadr, inshallah, we'll recite du'a Joshin al-Kabir. One of the lines, Ya man sabaqat rahmatuhu ghadaba. Oh, the one whose mercy takes precedence over his anger and wrath. That's a line in the du'a Joshin al-Kabir that will tell Allah, your rahmah, your compassion, your benevolence takes over, is over your anger. In the, in the Quran in chapter 7, Al-A'raf 156, my mercy, Allah says, embraces everything. Allah's mercy embraces everything in existence. And let me end with this last slide. 
Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. 113 of the 114 chapters of the Quran begin with this phrase. Every time we begin our namaz, we say after takbir to ihram, we say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim and start Surah Al Fatiha. It's a part of every chapter except for chapter 9. We recite it every time out loud as men. It is for men, we, we need to say this out loud. It's a sign of the Shia to recite Bismillah out loud. And what do the words mean? Ar Rahman is a specific trait of Allah, which only Allah can have. Only Allah has Rahmaniyyah. But it is a level of general mercy and, compa- uh, general mercy and compassion to all of creation. So, Muslim, non-Muslim, atheist, polytheist, monotheist, all of humanity benefit from Allah being a Rahman. Nobody is deprived of that level of mercy of Allah. But Ar-Rahim is a general name which other than Allah can have, but it's a specific level of mercy, mercy and compassion for only the believers on the Day of Judgment. We will see the manifestation of Rahimiyah of Allah. Not only Muslims, but those people of previous generations that followed their prophet, they're also believers in their, in their messenger. And so they will envelop and be enveloped by the complete and over, overarching rahmah of Allah. There is no limit to Allah's mercies.